Hello. Welcome to the fifth installment of Snooping Caprock by Jen Waldo. In the last reading, Sandra and the detective Joe Epps followed the assistant zookeeper Tansy to a bar. Also, Sandra obtained photos of the town meeting in an effort to give her boss's wife an alibi. In this segment, Sandra babysits for a friend as she attends the funeral of the murdered zookeeper, Hector Vasquez. That evening at grief, it appears that a tense triangle has formed. Pete and Kirk claim the seats on both sides of Ellen. The two guys exchange competitive glances and take turns claiming Ellen's ear. This development isn't unexpected, as Ellen's clear skin, brown bouncy hair, and pearly teeth are sure to stir interest. Some women would be pleased by this development, but Ellen seems puzzled and nervous, hunching inward, a protective posture that causes me to suspect bullying or coercion in her past. Perhaps I misinterpreted her offended expression during the meeting a couple of weeks ago. I thought she was put off by Pete's cigarette cloud, but maybe something else is going on with her. I wonder if she would fit in with the Monday night abuse group. The thought of the Monday night women makes me restless. Who formed the group? Who gave them permission? Who gave them access to the building? What could they possibly get out of sharing and rehashing? Talk, talk, talk. Where does it get them? Wendy breezes in, a cacophony of color, red cheeks and nose, orange hair, turquoise sweater, pink skirt. The odor of garlic wafts from her as she circumnavigates the group and settles heavily into her seat. Those of us who are here on time observe patiently as she adjusts her sweater, tucks her massive brown purse to the side of her chair, and smooths her windblown hair away from her face. She always carries a briefcase, but I've never seen her open it or use it in any way. Does she make notes about us? Does she carry her notes around? Before we get started with our regular meeting, she begins, I'm sure we'd all like to hear what Sandra has to say. She turns toward me, her eyes wide with disingenuous expectation. What could I possibly have to say? I ask, bewildered as the attention of the whole circle focuses on me. Since we saw you last, you had a life-changing experience, she explains. Realization strikes. She's talking about Hector Vasquez. The memory pops into my mind, the gnawed jawbone in the dirt, teeth visible, obviously human. Usually I dislike Wendy a little bit. Right now I hate her a lot. I have been handling this. The image is in my mind and there's no getting rid of it, so I've been adjusting gradually, coming to grips with the fact that the grisly visual will be part of me from now on. But her assumption that I want to pull it out and talk about it is intrusive and cruel. Was it the reason for your absence last week? She wants to know. Nah, Pete answers. She got mad at something Karen said at Tuesday night's group and walked out. That's not what happened, I correct him. I didn't feel well. Tuesday night, Wendy muses. Which group is that? Possession obsession. This from Maria, who takes malicious pleasure in knowing how Wendy will respond. Not even a legitimate group. See, predictable. We all know how Wendy feels about possession obsession. Her dismissive attitude rankles. There are people in possessions with real issues. Maybe not all of us, but some. She turns to me, once again saying, You had an experience to share? There isn't anything to tell, I say, hoping this will close the subject. But Wendy simply continues to look at me, awaiting a response, a blatant tactic learned in her first week of psychology school. Refusing to be manipulated, I remain silent. And the silence turns into a tense battle of wills where each of us waits for the other to speak. After a full minute, she breaks. We all know that it helps to talk about traumatic events. She looks around the circle, seeking support. No one meets her gaze. Her power play has caused her to lose respect, and she knows it. Taking refuge in the regular format, she addresses the person to her right. Lurleen, would you like to open with a question or statement? During the break, Wendy is not quite as voluble and dominating as usual. And at the end of the session, when we're all gathering our things and preparing to exit, she asks me to stay after for a few minutes, which makes me feel like a kid in trouble with a teacher. I receive a few sympathetic glances at the others pull on their jackets and take flight. I want to talk to you about what happened this evening, she tells me. I press my lips together. When I open a subject for examination, it's to be taken seriously, she says. Your lack of response this evening was small-minded and divisive. She wants me to say something, and as soon as I figure out what it is, I'll be happy to comply. 
Your behavior was borderline sedition, she continues, and this wasn't the first time. Without fail, when the conversation doesn't go where you want it to go, you fidget and distract and introduce whatever it is you think we should be talking about. I work hard to keep this group focused and cohesive. I can't have you bringing your own agenda in here, undermining all I'm hoping to accomplish. Oh, I'm getting it now. She resents anyone other than her having a say. I'm the leader of this group, she reminds, and if you're unable to submit to my fair-minded regulation, I suggest you find something else to do with your Thursday nights. Now she's gone too far. You're asking me to leave the group? I ask. For her to do so would go against everything the CCC stands for. Of course not, she responds. I'm asking you to apologize and not to do it again. Oh, she wants an apology. I can do that. Oh, I say. I'm sorry. And it won't happen again, she presses. No, I reply. You can't be in control of every situation, she tells me. Sometimes it's good to let someone else take charge. Weren't you seeing Dr. Miley at one point? I'm sure he'd be glad to see you again, help you work out whatever it is you're going through. As I drive home, I mentally review the conversation. Her use of the word agenda implies that I deliberately try to aim the group where I want them to go for my own purposes. The accusation makes no sense. What purpose could I possibly have? Also, she said, every time, which indicates that her complaint, though petty and bogus, is ongoing. Her invoking Dr. Miley gives me pause. Do I need to see him? Am I being paranoid or hostile or loud without cause? Am I losing sleep or crying for no reason? No, to all of the above. I'm fine. At home, I view Allred's photos. He must have taken a hundred, all angles, covering every section, row, and corner. Keeping an eye out for Millie's platinum streaks, I click through them quickly at first. When I don't catch sight of her hair, I do it again, more slowly. This time, there are a few surprises. For one thing, sitting several rows back from me is Manny Vasquez, son of the murdered zookeeper. When I saw him in his backyard, he was eating and laughing, comfortable in his position as patriarch, taking joy in the presence of his family and friends. In this picture, he wears a button-down shirt and tie. He gazes somberly toward the front of the auditorium, following the decision-making process of local government. His mouth is firm, almost pinched, indicating repression of some negative emotion. Anger? Maybe. Impatience? Anxiety? What is he thinking, really? Does he attend town meetings regularly, or did he come hoping to hear something pertaining to his father's death? I review the timeline. On the Monday of the meeting, it had not yet been made public that Hector Vasquez had been murdered. At the time, Manny's father's death was thought to be due to misadventure, so he wasn't there to cast blame. Maybe, like me, he suspects the death of his father is tied to the release of the animals. I wish he had agreed to speak to me when I called. I should have been more persistent. Maybe, now that the death has officially been labeled murder, I'll give him another call. Also, near the back, three rows in front of Joe, is the lesbian triangle, with Paula holding her usual center position between Tansy and Beth. Allred caught them at a telling moment, their expressions perfectly revealing the aspects of their relationship. Tansy's eyes slant away from Paula as she fearfully chews on her lower lip. Paula sprawls, her arms settle possessively along the back of her companion's chairs, a nasty smirk on her face, and Beth's eyes are noticeably void. Her jaw is slack, and her head tilts as though she's having difficulty supporting it. Did she pop a pill, smoke a little pot? From the rear corner, Joe peers at them, a keen and calculating squint dominating his features. Have I underestimated him? Is he more intelligent than I gave him credit for? No. In the next photo, perception is replaced by a leer as he observes the progression of a woman's shapely backside as she makes her way down the center aisle. And the woman his gaze is fixed upon is Millie, shown more clearly in the next photo. Still sporting the must hair, the heavy makeup, and the snug clothes, everything from her oversized earrings to her high-heeled shoes is calculated to draw notice. Surrounded by people in loose sweaters and jeans, her tight, short dress looks absurd. Fifty-six years old, dressing like a twenty-year-old streetwalker, is she trying out for the role of town slut? From the background faces, Joe's not the only one watching as she makes her way to a seat, tottering on the narrow heels. I send the photo to Ham's office email, proof that she was where she said she was. The next picture is of me, standing as I address the town leaders. I look good. My straight golden hair reflects a healthy sheen, and my animated features and stance reveal focus and intensity. Every component of my appearance identifies me as a person who is engaged, someone who cares. 
The dozen or so people caught in the background have their arms folded across their chests as they glare at me with a mixture of impatience, vexation, and boredom. Murphy Fry, behind me and over a seat, is captured in the middle of a juvenile eye roll. I sit at the computer for another hour, comparing prices and types of outdoor furniture. I'd really like to have a table and chairs for the backyard. The new poplar tree's not big enough to provide shade, but a picnic set would look great under the elm. Edgar lolls on the floor beside my desk. Every once in a while, he shifts and emits a sleepy meow. I don't like having a cat. I don't like the smell of his food. I don't like shifting through the cat box, removing the clumps and turds. If my parents decide to stay gone for the whole winter, would it be horrible of me to try to find him a new home? The next morning, I tap on the jam of Ham's open office door. Thanks for going to the trouble, he murmurs, his sad gaze fixed on the screen in front of him. The proof that he seemed to need has offered him no relief. Instead, he's defeated and humiliated. His wife looks like a prostitute in that picture, and a lot of people were there. Rumors will be flying that she's on the prowl, that Doc isn't satisfying her at home. During his poker night, suggestive comments will be dealt across the table along with the cards. Or even worse, his friend's eyes won't meet his, and everyone will be overly polite. Poor Ham. Are you okay? I ask. She's making a change, that's all, he says. Women do that now and then. It keeps them feeling young. I ran into her at the hospital yesterday morning, I tell him. Is she okay? She was seeing a podiatrist, he informs, shaking his head. She's decided her toes need restructuring. She's getting plastic surgery on her feet, I ask, wondering why a sane person would do such a thing. Looks like it, he replies. I return to my computer and, as the first patient isn't due for a few minutes, poke in Tansy's phone number. Why are you calling me, is her churlish greeting. What part of go away do you not understand? Are you all right, I ask. You're hanging with a rough crowd. Paula Mercer's got a reputation. I heard your car was egged, she says. Why do you think someone would do a thing like that? If you're involved in a violent relationship, I tell her, you need to know that violence escalates. It never just goes away. I bet you were born with preachy words pouring out of your mouth, she says. How is your relationship with Hector Vasquez, I ask. If I talk to you, will you leave me alone? Absolutely, I promise. Maybe. How did you and Hector get along? We got along fine, she tells me. Was he a good boss? I want to know. It's more like we were partners. We respected each other, she says. I take this to mean he knew she was gay and didn't judge. We laughed at the same things, she continues. We both enjoyed taking care of the animals, and now I'm being treated like a criminal when I've lost someone I cared about. And what about Paula and Beth, I ask. Did they get along with Hector, too? Why would they have ever had anything to do with Hector? Well, sometimes people visit friends at work, I explain. Well, that never happened. Her tone is guilty, distressful, clipped, and cagey. Not ever, not even once, I ask. A wide, open outdoor area, no pressure, an easygoing boss. The atmosphere at the zoo would be conducive to a friendly visit now and then. Never, she insists. How serious was his drinking? Did he come to work drunk? He drank, she says, but I think it was more of a nighttime, lonely kind of thing. He had it under control. Did he get loud or violent when he'd been drinking? Nah, he just came to work hungover pretty much every morning. Did Paula give you the busted lip, I ask. Does she hit Beth, too? Oh, enough with the questions, Sandra. I have other things to do. She disconnects. There's a lot going on. Mom and Dad leaving me their cat. Hazel and Ham, both embroiled in domestic difficulties. Friends from my groups turning on me. These things are the reason why I've been slow on the uptake, so blind to what I know, which is that even the most degenerate lowlife thinks other people want to know what they're up to. I look up Paula Mercer on Facebook. Her posted picture is unimaginative, like an ID photo. She stares straight into the lens, her expression confrontational. Her personal information says she went to the community college in Larietta for two years. Her birthday is May 7th, and she works at the Caprock VMF, whatever that is. There is nothing else, no friendly interaction or shared articles. I leave Facebook and look up Paula's workplace. VMF stands for Vehicle Maintenance Facility, located on 1604 Paley, an address I don't recognize. Down the hall, Hazel exits the break room and tromps toward me, red-faced and huffing like an overworked engine. What's got into him today? She asks when she's a few feet away. What happened? I want to know. He just stabbed at me, that's what. She's so upset that her voice has taken on a tremor, like she's holding back tears. 
On the surface, her being this disturbed over what was probably a very brief exchange seems like an overreaction, but Ham is never rude, never. He's going through a hard time, I tell her, adding, Millie's acting crazy. So what else is new? She turns away, changes her mind, and turns back, saying, You hear on the news this morning about the Vasquez funeral? Tomorrow at 1 at St. Joseph's. Are you going? I might, I answer. I really want to go to that funeral, but I have promised to take Myra's baby for the afternoon. Is it okay to take a baby to a funeral? Of course it is. During our lunch walk, Janine also asks if I'm going to the funeral. I'm thinking about it, I say, provoking a critical grunt from a fourth-floor receptionist. They're calling it a funeral, but maybe it's a memorial service, Janine says. I mean, do you really think there's enough left of him to put in a casket and bury? Do you think it's appropriate to go to the funeral of someone you didn't know? This from the judgmental receptionist. She's already struggling for breath, though we've only scaled two flights. You think the mayor won't put in an appearance? I'm being defensive. Sometimes it seems like they disapprove of everything I do. You think members of the town council won't be there? It's their duty to attend the funeral of a city worker, not yours, she says. But what if there's a poor turnout? What if the only people who show up are family members and a few elderly town council members? Wouldn't that make Caprock look bad? There's a general murmur of agreement that this would indeed be shameful, which leads to four of the six women saying that they, too, will attend. We make plans to sit together. I heard there was an altercation between you and Wendy Coward at a CCC group last night, one of the women says. I'll be hearing about this all day. People who weren't there will have an opinion. If your parents left their cat in your care, I say, deliberately changing the subject, and then went away for an extended period of time, would it be okay to give the cat away? No, says one. Of course not, says another. You'd never, says another. A similar conversation takes place at addiction. You think it's okay to go to a stranger's funeral, someone asks. I'm attending, as are several other members of the force, Carol says, a show of respect for a municipal worker. It's the right thing to do. A man was murdered while working to maintain the zoo that belongs to all of us, I say. If you ask me, everyone in town should be there. Hey, Sandra, Pete told me you and Wendy got into it last night at grief, Bill says. Wendy tried to get Sandra to talk about how it felt to come across a murder victim. This explanation is offered by Maria, who is also in grief and saw the whole thing. Sandra didn't want to talk about it, and then there was this weird moment when they had a staring contest. I've been expecting it to come up, just like before I changed the subject. My parents dumped their cat on me. Does anyone want it? This draws the anticipated gasp. You can't give someone else's pet away, Maria says. How can you even think such a thing? Your mom and dad would never forgive you, someone else says. I keep my head down and act appropriately contrite, content to let the conversation drift back to where I want it to be, which it eventually does. Who else is going to the funeral? Maria asks. I'm going, I say, and so are some of the women from the building where I work. Do you want to sit with us? Karen and I will come too, Bill says. We'll sit with you too. I've babysat for friends in the past, and it's always surprising how much work a tiny baby adds to a regular day. With the funeral starting in an hour, I get Myra's baby, Benjamin, fed, burped, and changed. I want to make sure he's as comfortable as he can be. For baby transportation, Myra provided a bassinet that fits on a frame with wheels. The bassinet can be removed and fastened into the back seat of the car, and the lightweight frame collapses and fits on the floorboard. Then the action is reversed when we reach our destination. A clever and convenient contraption, though she bought it secondhand and all the joints seem to be loose. Arriving on time to the funeral, I'm proud to have filled two pews. Joe Epps said I didn't have friends, but look how many people I've influenced in a positive way. Offering subdued greetings to the people who, at my instigation, have come to support the Vasquez family, I take a seat on the far left side, on the aisle, so I can make an easy getaway if Benjamin has baby issues. The Vasquez family takes up the first two rows on the left side of the church. For this occasion, they're somber and dressed in subdued colors. There are many children, all ironed and combed. They lean into their mother's fleshy shoulders. At the front, next to the closed coffin, a large picture of Hector Vasquez is propped on an easel. Surrounded by flower arrangements is a professional photo taken recently. Wearing a suit and tie, Hector gazes thoughtfully at the congregation. He had kind eyes. I remember that about him from addiction. 
Municipal employees filling the pews on the right are obvious because of their dress. A row of police uniforms, a row of firemen uniforms. I overlook Joe Epps at first because, in blues, he blends in with the rest of the department. My eyes meet Carol's. Also clad in blue, she furrows a brow and pokes her face toward me, trying to communicate something, but I can't tell what. I shrug back at her, indicating that I don't understand. Exasperated, she returns her attention to the front. Accompanied by spouses, the town council sits behind the uniforms. Tansy isn't here. I turn around in my pew, looking all around to make sure I haven't missed her. She claimed to have lost a friend, but she couldn't be bothered to pay final respects. Facing forward once again, I'm surprised to see Joe approaching. He raises a brow at the baby, then, resting a hand on the back of the pew, bends down, aiming his words toward my ear. I cock my head. Tansy Carlin's in the hospital, he says. Got beat up pretty bad last night. Straightening, he returns to his place in the cop row. Benjamin is settled and content for the first 20 minutes. Music and prayers and Bible passages, he's quiet throughout. But halfway through the eulogy, a few brief and meaningless paragraphs read by Hector's daughter, he becomes restless, kicking and emitting squawks. Fearing that a howl is imminent, I rise and push the rickety pram toward the back. An usher opens the door just as Benjamin releases an angry screech. I wheel him into the adjacent mom's room, a chamber intended for exactly this purpose, and, lifting him from his basket, hold him to my shoulder and calm him by swaying and cooing. Typical of someone who doesn't spend that much time with babies, I forget to put a cloth on my shoulder and he burps up chunky, smelling milk, which flows all over the upper left quadrant of my navy blouse. Oh well. I wipe myself down, change Benjamin's diaper, and view the rest of the service through the window of the soundproofed crying room. After the funeral, people exit through the back of the sanctuary. Outside, at the bottom of the three steps, along the border of the walkway, Hector's three sons and daughter form a receiving line. A kind stranger takes hold of the front of the pram, helping the baby and me down the stairs. On the grass, behind the adult Vasquez siblings, their children struggle to maintain a degree of dignity, but this is hard for kids. They tap each other's shoulders and pretend they didn't. They duck behind one another, make faces, and call out too loudly. The sun is bright and the air is crisp and still, a lovely autumn day. I knew Hector from addiction. I shake Manny's hand while simultaneously jigging the pram. I'm sorry for your loss. He had alcohol issues, Manny says. I didn't know he tried a support group. He's wearing the same tie he wore to the town meeting. He only came a few times, I tell him. He seemed like a nice man. Yes, Manny looks beyond, ready for me to move on, but I'm not quite ready. I called a few days ago, I say, but you couldn't speak to me. Do you have a few minutes free? Maybe tomorrow? Eh? He looks at me like he thinks I'm crazy. Then his eyes take on a gleam, and he says, You're the girl from the town meeting. You took up all the time and made everybody mad. Why did you do that? I can come to your house, or we can meet somewhere else, I tell him. I tell you what, he offers. I'll be at my work tomorrow afternoon. Stop by then. He shifts his attention to the person behind me. I move on, shaking hands with his sister. Nice eulogy, I tell her. Hector will be missed. He was a good person. After the funeral, I load Benjamin and all his paraphernalia into the car and drive to the hospital. Stopping by the information desk to get Tansy's room number, I wheel the pram to the elevator and get off on the fourth floor. I pause in the doorway. She's the only occupant of a double room. The head of the bed is elevated, so I get a good look at her. Her face is swollen and purple. Her eyes are slits in the middle of puffy flesh. The bruising extends down her neck and disappears into the cotton gown. Her arms rest outside the cover and they too are bruised. The lower portion of her right arm is in a cast. She's hooked up to an IV. Are there internal injuries? I allow myself a second to feel lightheaded. The hospital, a battered woman. I touch my scar, proof that I was once in this same bad way. I inhale, set my shoulders, and move on. Wow, you got the shit beat out of you for sure, I observe. You must be in so much pain right now. Her head remains unmoving as she flicks her bloodshot eyes at me. Baseball bat? Tire iron? I ask. Entering pram first, I circle her bed and take the chair that faces the door. She issues an unhappy grunt. You tell the cops who did this to you? It was Paula. That's my bet, I say. Go away. Speaking through smashed and busted lips, her words are garbled. What? I couldn't understand you. I said go away. Still not understanding, I tell her. Where are your friends? I look around like I expect them to be lurking in a corner. They don't care enough to visit you in the hospital? She closes her eyes. Paula appears in the doorway, holding a bag of chips and a soft drink. 
What the hell are you doing here? Paula asks as she enters, giving me a mean squint as she claims the position on the opposite side of the bed. I told you to leave us alone. Technically, she didn't, unless she's counting the anonymously sent email. Her eyes light on the bassinet, but she doesn't comment. Beth shuffles in, interrupting the tense atmosphere. Catching sight of me, she bites her lower lip, looks at her feet, shuffles to the wall, and slumps against it. She's a collection of broad curves, rounded back and shoulders, torso like a beach ball. Her hair, short, brown, and straight, is the wrong style for her face. Paula's mood shifts abruptly, noticeably, her belligerence softening into an affectionate glow as she traces a finger lightly over Tansy's arm, the one that's not broken. How you doing, sweetie? she asks. She's not doing well, I answer for Tansy. Once again, Paula's mood reverses, going from sweet to nasty as she gives me a malicious sneer. Making a head motion toward the door, she signals me to get out. Provocatively, spitefully, I wiggle my backside, settling further into the chair. She counters by rushing around the length of the bed, grabbing my arm, yanking me from the chair, and hauling me across the room. Twice my size, she effortlessly slings me through the door and into the opposite wall. I bump my shoulder, emitting a painful yelp. This is the last time, bitch, she says. I better not see you again. I straighten slowly as she disappears, only to reappear a few seconds later behind the pram. And don't forget your ugly baby, she roughly pushes him out of the room, and she closes the door. The nurse at the end of the hall has heard the commotion. Her head pops out as she leans over the counter and looks in my direction. Alarmed to see me swaying and rubbing my shoulder, she exits her area and rushes toward me. I get behind the pram and meet her halfway, assuring her that everything's fine. My arm is going to be sore and bruised. But now I know. Outside, Joe Epps leans against the driver's door of my car. Still wearing his dress blues, he straightens when he sees me approach. Where'd you get the baby, he asks. I'm watching him for a friend. I emphasize the word friend because he doesn't think I have any. Tansy's in pretty bad shape, right? He says. When someone gets beat up like that, shouldn't there be some kind of guard posted so it doesn't happen again? I rub my injured shoulder. She's not saying who it was, he replies, but whoever did it was acting on impulse. Ordinarily, I'd say it was a domestic squabble that got out of hand, but Tansy's not married, doesn't even have a boyfriend. As usual, his grasp of the possibilities is vague and uninspired. You're the one who knows everything about everybody. What do you think's going on, he asks. Maybe the same person who killed Hector Vasquez beat up Tansy, I suggest. We say our goodbyes, get in our cars, and drive in opposing directions. The Vasquez Contracting and Construction Company provides every home service imaginable. House cleaning, pool vacuuming, handyman jobs, roofing, drywall repair, painting, cabinet installation, renovation, and even major construction. The address given on the website places Manny's office in the business complex on 9th and Harbin, where seven rows of 24 garage-sized units take up a full city block. A six-foot chain-link fence surrounds the compound, making the area seem more like a prison than an industrial park. At least half the units are vacant, and the small businesses that occupy the other half seem dubious and ephemeral. A wholesale carpet company, a machine shop called Quickweld, an auto parts store. Because it is Sunday, most are closed, but a few have cars or trucks in front of them. I drive up and down the rows, checking the numbers. Manny's gigantic red truck is parked outside a unit in the road that runs across the back of the area. I pull up next to it, wincing as I open the door and extricate myself from behind the wheel. As anticipated, my shoulder is bruised and sore. Manny's office looks less temporary, more prosperous than the other businesses. With a glass front and a proper porch with a welcome mat, the place seems organized and prosperous. Inside, two desks face each other. Sitting behind one of the desks, holding a phone to his ear, Manny's frown of concentration reveals intelligence and intensity. He takes notes as he listens. Looking up, seeing me, his glower turns into a smile as he waves me in. I step inside. The place smells like sweat and cigarettes, though there are no sweaty people, no ashtrays. Manny continues his business call, discussing lumber, delivery, and scheduling, signaling that I should take the plastic chair that sits between the two desks. The computer on the desk is a relic from the 90s, a large boxed screen, a gigantic tower. I adjust the chair so that it's facing him, then settle into it, ready to talk when he's finished his call, which only takes a few more minutes. Hey, Miss Pushy, he greets as he turns off his phone. You came. I'm sorry about your dad. Hector was a nice guy, I tell him. A nice guy, right. Snide and sarcastic, his eyes take on a sinister glint, and suddenly he doesn't seem so friendly. I know he had a drinking problem, I say, but he had a job. He met his responsibilities. 
I don't know why I feel it's my place to defend the deceased, but I do. Met his responsibilities, he repeats. He looked out for himself, all right. His resentment is clear, but the reason for it isn't. Relationships between parents and their offspring are complex. That's a good thing, isn't it? I ask. You don't know anything about Tejanos, do you? No, I respond. We look after each other. I employ over a hundred people. Some cousin or aunt needs work, I create work. A nephew needs college money, I give him a summer job. My dad had four kids, and he spent every penny he ever made on booze. My mother worked while I raised my sister and brothers. I paid for their educations, and now they work for me, and their kids work for me. I take care of them all, and Dad never took care of anyone but himself. The two of you didn't get along? I ask. We got along fine, as long as he stayed out of my way, he tells me. So you didn't see him often? I want to know. Honey, I saw him never, he replies. He knew better than to show up at my door. Why would someone want to kill him? How would I know? Do you know if anyone was mad at him? Was he the kind of guy who made enemies? Manny seems to be a complicated man. I'm glad he's being open with me. The question is, who wasn't mad at him? It'd be hard to find anyone with a good thing to say about him. Did he owe the wrong people? I ask. Ha! Like there are a bunch of henchmen in Caprock running around offing people because of debt. Honey, he was a drinker, not a gambler. His co-worker, Tansy, thought of him as a friend, I tell him. Yeah, well, losers stick together. Do you think there's a connection between animals being let out of their enclosures and the death of your father? There's got to be, he says, and the police have got to think so too, which is why me and everybody else in town went to the meeting the other night so we could see where the investigation was going. Then it comes out that he was murdered. Shifty asshole though he was, my dad was killed and fed to wolves, and I want to know why. But you completely took over, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I like to know what motivates people. I'm curious about what made you think that what you wanted was more important than what everybody else in town wanted. He looks at me patiently, waiting for an explanation, but I don't have one. I did what I did because it felt right at the time. In retrospect, I can see it wasn't. But folks are being awfully small-minded about it. Am I the only person in town to have ever made a wrong call? I'm sorry, I tell him. I didn't intend for that to happen. I just wanted to be heard. Thanking him for his time, I leave. He's painted a confusing picture. I expected him to be respectful and grieving, but he's more curious than sad. He rhapsodizes about family unity, meeting responsibilities, and providing for others, but what I see is a controlling man, a bitter braggart. Also, for a person who places such value on family, he's short on compassion and forgiveness. In retrospect, though, I've taken what little I knew of Hector, kind eyes and dignified reticence, and created a likable person of depth and wisdom when the truth is I didn't know him at all. I reverse from the parking space, drive to the end of the rear row of units, and pull around the corner. Parking and getting out, I sidle up to the end unit and peek around, eyeing the frontage of Manny's place of business. I want to know if, now that I've departed, he stays and works for a while or locks the place up and drives away. Did he come here specifically to meet me? His tale about being interested in my motives doesn't ring true. Most people aren't stirred to inconvenience just because they're curious. To my surprise, Paula Mercer's bedraggled Camaro pulls into the place I just vacated. She idles there for a few seconds before Manny comes out of his office and strides to her side of the car. Even from this distance, I can see the furrow in his brow. I read the resentful set of his shoulders. She lowers her window, and the two of them talk for a minute or so. Then Manny pulls his wallet from his back pocket, extracts what looks like several bills, and hands them to her. He takes a step back and, hands on hips, watches as she reverses and drives away. He returns inside. What was that about? The address given for the place where Paula works, the VMF, is 1604 Paley, an unfamiliar street name. I look it up on my phone, only to find that it's located near the edge of town, just beyond Neville Meyer Park, no more than a quarter of a mile from the zoo. The most expedient route to the VMF follows Ames Avenue around the park, but I decide to take the scenic detour. On an autumn Sunday afternoon, the place is packed with picnicking families and church groups. Volleyball and touch football take up all the grassy areas, and the playground equipment is crawling with kids. The zoo parking lot is full, but the gates are closed. Beyond the zoo, I turn on to a pitted road that leads through a less populated area. Back here, the grass is brown and weedy, and the trees grow further apart. Bits of trash are tucked into tree roots, and flat, muddy ground indicates a drainage problem. The road ends at a T-junction with Paley Road, marking the boundary of the park. A hundred yards to the right, on the opposite side of the street, a 12-foot-high chain-link fence surrounds a couple of acres of machinery and equipment. 
I turn in that direction and pull up to the front gate, which bears a sign designating vehicle maintenance, City of Caprock. My phone rings. It's my mother. Hey, Mom, I say, where are you calling from? Please tell me you're not really trying to find a new home for Edgar, she says. Who have you been talking to? I ask her. Someone in one of your groups called me. A woman named Wendy, she says. It figures. Wendy wasn't included in either conversation about Edgar, but people talk. Wendy likes to get people riled, I reply. Don't pay any attention. She seemed like a nice woman to me, Mom says. She's concerned about you. She said the whole town's mad at you because of something you said at the town meeting. Everything's fine, I insist. I'm sorry she disturbed your trip. How's it going? Driving through Kentucky. The countryside is lovely. I swear we drove right through a rainbow this morning. And how's Dad? Is he enjoying himself? Oh, you know your father. Have you ever known him not to enjoy himself? My parents, the most upbeat couple in America. Y'all have a good time, I say, and relax. Edgar's not going anywhere. We say our goodbyes. Then I sit and look beyond the fence in front of me. It is what I expect, a large lot full of heavy machinery. The vehicles are tightly packed. Digging machines and buses form a wall along the front. Off to the right, where the front fence meets the side fence, a rusty fire truck slumps lopsidedly. I wonder what Paula does here. I wonder how much control she has over all this power on wheels. I remember something Tansy told me a while back, that the trucks that hauled the elephants belong to the city. This must be where they're kept. The two sides of the big gate meet in the center, held secure by a padlocked chain. I reverse and drive home. Now I know where Paula works and where the city keeps its heavy equipment. Interesting little facts, but hardly amazing or relevant. On Monday, Millie comes to the office to meet Ham for lunch. She's all decked out in her new outrageous style. Lycra, big earrings, big hair, heavy eye makeup. The heels she's wearing add several inches to her height, causing her to tower over the counter. She tilts her head as she assesses me. Hey, Millie, I agreed. Why are you looking at me like that? I don't like you, she tells me. You know that. This candor, while offensive, is nothing new between Millie and me. We have this conversation every couple of months. Yes, I say, but I don't know why. It's hard to like someone when they don't like you. Well, there's no arguing with that, I tell her. What's this new look about? You look like Michelle Pfeiffer in Married to the Mob. This is true, but she's a lot older. And who wouldn't want that, she asks, sashaying back to Ham's office. He and Hazel are in there discussing the schedule for the week, and as soon as Millie enters, Hazel pops out. Surprised by Millie's new look, Hazel's eyes are big and her jaw has dropped. What the hell is she supposed to be? She asks as she approaches. I think she's going for an 80s mob theme, I tell her. I swear that woman's going to be the death of Ham. She slaps some paperwork on the counter. Did you go fishing again this weekend? The question reminds me of Donald. I need some new ideas about how to get him to open up. Did you ever know anybody who refused to speak about themselves? I ask her. There's this guy in one of my groups who's never shared any personal information. Never. We don't know where he's from or even where he works. None of us have a clue why he's there. A guy? She asks. Do you like this guy? Are you thinking about having a relationship with someone? Stop it, I say. I mean, what's with him? He's supportive and perceptive and he offers good advice in the group, but for all we know, there's nothing behind his face at all. Which group? She asks. Possession obsession. And you don't know why he's there? Not a clue. And you've asked him point blank? Many times, I say, he evades or deflects. Sounds like someone with something to hide, she says. That's what I thought too, but there's absolutely nothing suspicious about him. His life is so normal, it's boring. As far as I can see, there's no reason for him to be in the group at all. No collections or compulsions of any kind. You've been to his house, she squints at me. Yes. What do other people in the group think of him? Everybody likes him, I tell her. He's a likable guy. I'm the only one who seems to care that he's never shared. Remind me again why you go to that particular group? Because I was obsessed with ceramic bunnies. And are you still? She asks. No, I reply. It was just a reaction to everything that was going on at the time. I never took the bunny collection as seriously as Dr. Miley did. He made such a big deal out of it that I packed them up and gave them to Goodwill. What's surprising, though, is that now, years later, remembering how I got rid of them makes me feel sad, like I'm yearning for a bunch of breakable bunnies. That was one of the worst periods of my life, so why would thinking about it make me feel nostalgic? So there you go, she says. We all go through changes. This guy might have had a problem once, but he's gotten better. Then why won't he just come clean, I ask. Maybe it's embarrassing, like he had a thing for red lingerie, or maybe he's just a private person. 
But there's no privacy in the groups. Talking about our issues is what we're all about, I tell her. Ham and Millie come out of Ham's office. Millie's hair is more messed up than it was when she went in, and her heavy eyeliner is slightly smeared. Mainly what I notice is her look of satisfaction. If she were a cat, she'd be purring. She walks slightly in front of Ham, whose hand rests at the small of her back, an endearingly protective gesture. You don't think they were doing it in the office, do you? Hazel asks as soon as they've exited the waiting room. There's something going on with them, I say. Maybe it's their age. They both seem so desperate and miserable lately. It's indiscreet, but true. I'm the same age they are, and I'm not acting crazy at all. Bringing the conversation to a close with a slap on the counter, she pivots and heads toward the break room. The violent scene between her and her father pops into my mind. Just because she claims she's not acting crazy doesn't mean it's true. I change my shoes and go to meet the ladies for our noon walk. After work, I stop by the hospital to see Tansy, only to find that she's not there. I drive by her house, but Paula's car is in the driveway, so I don't stop. On the way home, I call Joe. Have you found out who beat up Tansy Carlin? I ask. Well, if she refuses to talk, there's not a lot I can do about it, he tells me. Maybe she's scared to talk, I reply. She says she's not. Also, you got no business questioning Manuel Vasquez. Manny told you I questioned him? Yes, he says. What were you thinking? He wanted to talk to me. He invited me to his office, and I didn't question him. We just talked about his dad. You knew Hector? He says this with suspicion, which puts me on guard. You think because I knew him slightly that I murdered him? The last thing I want is to be in the crosshairs of an unimaginative detective who's aiming his sights at any lead he can get. How did you know him? He asks. He was in addiction for a while a couple of years ago, I answer. Were you close friends? How well did you know each other? Barking up the wrong tree, Joe, I tell him before ending the call. An empty Monday night stretches before me. Last week, when Karen and Bill announced their engagement, I was stunned and maybe a little doubtful. As a result, the congratulations I offered was half-hearted, and I feel bad about that. As a member of the group, it's my place to support, not judge. Also, I fear I've been a little distant with Karen since she hurt my feelings that one night, which is shameful. If there's anyone in town who should understand and forgive a lack of tact, it's me. So, rather than spend a boring evening at home, or worse, park in the lot of the CCC and obsess over the women who are in there talking about their pain, I drive to Wilbur Road and pull into Grumpy's, the bar that Karen manages. I've been here once before, when Karen had to work on a Tuesday night, and she asked us please to stop by after group and catch her up. It's a basic sort of drinking place, a single murky room with a couple of pool tables at the back, a counter that's centered in the middle of the south wall, and 20 small round tables. Not a crowded night. At first glance, I estimate 15 customers. The music is country, turned low, and the people all wear jeans. Coming from the back, the crash of pool balls. In the front corner, two women having an intense discussion and sipping red wine. Bill sits at the end of the bar talking to Karen, who scans the room as she chats. No one's working the tables, so I guess Karen is the only one on duty tonight. When she catches sight of me, she grins and waves. I head over. Hey, guys, I say to them as I take the stool next to Bill. It's so high, I have to give a little hop in order to reach the seat. You sure are tiny, Bill says. In my head, I'm six feet tall, I tell him. What are you having? Karen's long hair is pulled back and clipped up. I like your blouse, I tell her. When she wears something new, I usually suspect thievery. Any red wine, thanks. She steps away to get it for me. What's up, Bill asks. Heard anything new about the zoo? Did you know about the zookeeper Tansy getting beat up so badly she ended up in the hospital? Huh. Maybe she knows something about the murder, and the beating was a warning to keep quiet. Who? What? Karen asks as she sets a glass of wine in front of me. Sandra was saying how that woman zookeeper got beat up, Bill tells her. That's an interesting development. She turns to me, asking, who did it? She's not saying, I tell her. Because she's scared to, Bill says. Maybe it's completely unrelated to the zoo, like a mean boyfriend or something, Karen says. Karen's had her share of mean boyfriends. In subconscious sympathy, I lift my hand to my temple and press the scar. When I realize what I'm doing, I lower my hand. Not a boyfriend, I tell them. She's a lesbian, and she's tight with Paula Mercer and Beth Kyle. Uh-oh, is Bill's response. I know Paula from my days in the seedy underbelly. She's scary. Are you sure? Karen asks, looking thoughtful. I guess I can see it. Beth and Tansy would be easy targets for a bully psycho like Paula. As if on cue, the door opens and Paula saunters in. Beth follows, shuffling and watching her own feet like she finds them fascinating. What a bizarre coincidence, is Bill's response. We're talking about her and she walks through the door. 
A coincidence? I'm not sure. I fear they followed me here. On the other hand, there are only five or six bars in town, three of them rowdy. If they wanted to go out for a quiet beer, their choices are limited. Shh, Karen warns as Paula and Beth come to a stop a few yards down the bar. Karen moves in that direction, asking, What are you drinking tonight, ladies? While Karen and Paula discuss beer, I surreptitiously slide off the stool, circle Bill, and mount the stool on his other side. Bill, I say, explain to me why I'm the only one in the group that cares that Donald's never said why he's there. For one thing, he replies, it's a pointless group that's not helping anyone. I guess he thinks this because he doesn't have an issue with material items. The only reason he comes is to support his girlfriend. You don't think it's helping Karen? I ask. Karen goes because a judge ordered her to. I think it's made her aware that shoplifting isn't normal, but it hasn't made her stop. Maybe she needs treatment that's more intense, I suggest, like one-on-one time with an actual therapist. Or maybe she needs to take up something not illegal that'll give her the same charge, like skydiving or rock climbing. I recall the adrenaline surge from when I took the frame. I can see how that would be addicting. We follow her movements as she tilts a glass under the tap. Anyway, what do you think about Donald? Has it ever occurred to you that maybe he's playing with your head? Bill says, we all know how you are. If there's anything designed to make you crazy, it's not knowing every little detail about something or someone. Karen places the beers in front of Paula and Beth and returns to us. I ponder Bill's suggestion. Is Donald playing with me? Is he the cat and I'm the mouse? Hey, tiny dancer, Paula calls. Her voice carries, and it's me she's addressing. Everyone in the bar turns to look. I thought I told you I didn't want to see you again. She's on her feet and heading my way. Bill, I say, standing, I need you to walk me to my car. Sure. He gets up, positioning himself between Paula and me. What are you supposed to be? Paula asks. She moves right up to him, her nose inches from his. Her knight? Her protector? Well, you tell your little friend I know where she lives. She sneers and turns away, going back to her beer and stool. That's all there is to that, Bill tells me. Do you still want to leave, or do you want to stay and finish your wine? Stay, sit, Karen says. Tell us what's going on between you and that Wendy from grief. Also, I heard smokers ganged up on you. Yeah, I climb back onto the stool. They thought they could change my personality by griping at me for five minutes. You're made of stronger stuff. But I didn't come here to talk about me. I came to talk about you guys getting engaged. I make big eyes at the diamond on her left ring finger. When's the big day? What are your plans? The two of them hold hands, talk about how much longer Bill has to remain with his parents, six more months, and say how they're saving to go to New York City for their honeymoon. It's all very sweet, and I react to their news with enthusiasm. If their lives together go as planned, this marriage should be all right. They might even have kids eventually. I bet they drop out of their groups. As we gab, Paula and Beth finish their beers and leave. Ten minutes later, I finish my glass of wine and say goodbye. Bill walks me out. My tires have been slashed. Paula likes to go after my car, I tell Bill. We walk back inside, and he tells Karen what's happened and that he's going to run me home. You need a ride to your car in the morning, he asks as his truck rolls to a stop in front of my house. Thanks, but no. Craig at Full Service Auto will come to get me. I open the door and clamor out. Thanks for bringing me home. You ought not to have made her mad, he says. I know that now. She knows where you live, he reminds me. I close the door on his grin. A good friend, he stays at the curb until I'm safely inside. I set the alarm. The alarm goes off at 3 a.m. I go from deep, cozy sleep to leaping out of bed with a pounding heart. Within seconds, the phone on the nightstand rings. I pick up. This is Cindy with Ace Security. A soothing voice, me struggling to hear over the alarm. Monitoring your home. Are you in distress? Would you like me to notify the police? Yes, I say. I end the call. The alarm makes so much noise that I can't think clearly. The cat peeks out from beneath the bed, looking miserable. Shivering with fright, I grab my sweater from the foot of the bed and pull it over my nightshirt. Plaid flannel, an embarrassing garment to be caught in, either by a bad guy or the police. Still cold, I add a pair of black sweatpants. And then I'm torn between locking myself in the bathroom or going out and turning on all the lights. I start by turning on the light in the bedroom. Then I venture into the short hallway, flinching with every step, expecting to be grabbed or clobbered. After I turn on the hall light, I move into the living room and aim toward the kitchen, turning on lights as I go. The alarm is painfully loud. Its panel is on the wall by the back door. I turn it off. The silence is a relief. And the doorbell rings. I scurry to the front of the house, almost tripping over Edgar, who's staying close. 
Two uniforms are on the porch, their police car parked out by the curb. I open the door and motion them inside. Porch lights are going on up and down the street. The two policemen step in, name tags identifying them as Tino Nunez and Jacob Smith. I recognize Nunez from the afternoon at the zoo, the day we found Hector. Tell us what's going on, Nunez says. I was sleeping and the alarm went off and now you're here. That's all I know. Chilled, I hug myself and rub my upper arms through the sweater. You mind if we take a look around? Jacob asks. Please, I invite. With me trailing, the two move from one entry point to the other, checking windows and the back door, stopping at one of the windows in the living room. This one's been raised a bit, one of them comments. Just high enough to trigger the alarm, the other says. There's a little play in the lock. Either deliberate harassment or an attempt to break in, then I'm scared off by the alarm. Nunez says, scratching his head and looking thoughtful. You make any enemies lately? He asks. They continue to walk through the house, looking in closets and the pantry, trying to give me peace of mind before they leave. We'll stay in the area and keep an eye on things, Nunez tells me. I'd appreciate it, I reply. You need to lock up tight from now on. Make sure there's no wiggle room in the alarm connections. I tell them thanks and goodbye. There's no sleeping after that, so I watch CNN until 5 and then get ready to face the day. Craig, from full service, picks me up at 7.30 to take me to my car. A heavy, red-faced man, he sips steaming coffee as I clamber into the passenger seat of his truck. How are your folks, he asks, pulling away from the curb. Driving through Kentucky, last I heard, I answer. Living the dream, he comments. Yeah, I say, I don't get the appeal. Your car sure does get vandalized a lot, Craig says. This isn't the first time he's helped me out. The cost of being me, I observe. You find anything out about that CCC thing you were going on about at the town meeting? He asks. I didn't know anybody was actually listening to me, I tell him. Sure I was, he says. They got some unsanctioned meeting going on when the place is supposed to be closed. Sounds fishy to me. Me too, I agree. Craig and I have been friends for years, but our friendship doesn't translate into discounted service. Paula's petty act costs me $400. After getting my car in working order, I have half an hour before work, so I drive by Tansy's house. Paula's car isn't there, so I ring the bell. Tansy opens the door. Haggard, swollen, a sick color of green from the bruises. She wears navy sweatpants and a gray sweatshirt. There's a jagged, bloody line from her brow to her hairline. You look awful, I tell her, rubbing my sore shoulder, a victim of the same violent woman. And here I thought I looked like a beauty queen, she says. She fills the crack in the door, blocking entry. She put you in the hospital, Tansy. Why didn't you file charges? It was my fault, she whines. I know better than to make her mad. She feels awful about it. A typical response from a victim of domestic abuse. Was it because she found out that you and Beth have a thing? Is she jealous? What the hell are you talking about, she asks. Her puzzlement, is it feigned or real? I'm going with feigned. Did she kill Hector Vasquez, I ask. No, absolutely not, she denies, fearfully. Paula had access to your keys, didn't she? Was Hector interfering? Was he trying to get you to break it off with her? Stop it, she demands. You don't know what you're talking about. You and Hector were friends, I say, but I bet she doesn't allow you to have friends, does she? Did she mess you up to keep you from going to the funeral? She's going to find out you were here, Tansy tells me. You need to go. You're going to have to talk to the police, I say. You cannot continue to cover up and lie. Oh, good Lord, listen to yourself and your drama, she says, closing the door. She's right. I sound ridiculously impassioned, like I'm playing a part in a cheesy theatrical production. What am I doing, pleading with her like this? The poor woman is in pain and in trouble, and I'm harassing her. On the other hand, I'll never understand how a person in her position could react so passively. This is a time for action. She needs to stand up for herself. I ring the bell again, planning to apologize, hoping to reason with her further, but she doesn't return. That evening, at Possession Obsession, Karen admits that she got caught stealing a pashmina at Dillard's this afternoon. I pleaded with them, she says, and explained that if they called the cops on me, I'd definitely have to do some jail time, so they took pity on me and called mall security instead, and now I'm banned from the mall. You got off lightly, Mabel says. You've got to stop this, Joan says, her voice trembling with emotion. We're all invested in each other's progress. Joan adds, you're going to be married soon. You're going to have a responsibility towards someone other than yourself. What if you have children? What kind of example will you be? Sitting beside Karen, Bill squirms, takes a breath like he's going to speak, then settles back into his chair. Covertly, I watch Donald, looking for signs that he's enjoying himself at my expense. 
a secretive grin or a wicked eye twinkle, but he's the picture of equanimity. If he's being manipulative, he's very good at it. The topic moves on to Mabel's new couch. Didn't you just buy a new couch? I ask. That was six months ago, she says. Backsliders and non-starters. Bill's right. This group doesn't seem to be helping anyone. The smokers of the group have heard about my house alarm going off, so that's the focus of the conversation during break. You made yourself a target when you went against everybody at the town meeting, Karen says. Went against everybody, I ask. Is that what you think? This is baffling. I spoke out on a topic important to the whole town. How could that be interpreted as contentious? You think the same person who slashed your tires also egged your car and triggered your alarm? This from Pete, who exhales a cloud of smoke as he speaks. Either way, she's got somebody mad at her. Donald puts me in a third-person context, as though I'm not standing right beside him. He peers into the park suspiciously, as though he fears whoever's mad at me is lurking among the trees, waiting to pounce. Not the first time, I say, and it won't be the last. Yeah, she's poked a real mean bear this time. Paula Mercer, Bill says, telling them about her threatening me last night at Grumpy's. That's not good, Pete says. I'm pretty sure she's behind the zoo break-ins, I tell them. This hunch has become fact in my mind. What makes you think so, Karen asks. It's complicated, I tell her. I'm seeing connections, that's all. I drop my cigarette, step on it, and briefly wonder who sweeps up after us. Twice a week, we troop out here to smoke. We all have a habit of dropping the butt, grinding it out, and then walking away. But next time we come out, the place is always clean. If you've got information, Karen says, you should tell the police. Even though Karen is often on the wrong side of the law, she gets along well with Caprock's finest. We finish up and go back in. That night, the alarm goes off again. This time, the responders are Jacob from last night and another guy, this one African-American, with a name tag that identifies him as Elgin Pike. They walk in, two large men loaded with hardware that creaks when they move. Last night, the police seemed polite and concerned, but tonight they seem snarky. Slack posture, grunts, frowns, a lack of concern that's insulting. Jacob goes straight to the window that was the culprit last night, only to discover that, once again, it's been raised just enough to break the connection. I told you last night to firm this up, he says. You've only got one more freebie, then we start charging. What? I ask, shocked. Yep, $50 a pop, he tells me. We can't just keep coming over here whenever you're obviously not in danger. It's like the boy who cried wolf. But that's just wrong, I protest. It's like you're punishing me for being the victim. This attitude is the reason why the police are avoided rather than appreciated. Shouldn't you try to catch who's doing this instead of putting it all on me, I ask. There are all kinds of reasons why alarms go off, he explains, most of which have nothing to do with burglary and everything to do with carelessness or, like in your case, faulty human relationships. I've known a few to set off the alarm just to get attention. I'm pretty sure he's talking about Ham's wife, Millie, who did exactly that several times last year when Ham stayed at his poker game until past 11. If I were you, he says, I'd mend some fences. And they leave without even wishing me a good night and without offering any sympathetic assurances that they'll remain in the area. For the second night in a row, my sleep has been disrupted because of Paula Mercer, and now the police regard me as a pest. I don't know what her strategy is. Is she trying to get me to turn off the alarm and then she's going to make a move? Is she trying to break me financially? I don't make that much money, and the costs are adding up. Later, at work, I discuss it with Hazel as she sits beside me at the counter. On hold with an insurance company, she taps her pen impatiently. I don't know what to do, I tell her. I know who it is, but I don't know how to make her stop. Who is it? She asks. Tap, tap, tap goes her pen. Paula Mercer, I inform. That tough woman who was in prison? She looks appalled. How did you get on the wrong side of her? It's a long story, I reply. All your snooping and meddling sure does get you in a lot of trouble, she says. Tap, tap, tap. Tell me about it, I agree. What would you do if you were me? Go to the police, she declares, or you could get a gun or leave town, or maybe you should apologize. Holding a finger up to silence me, she turns her attention to the person who's come on the line. I don't like any of the options she's offered. Surely there's a better way to handle this. Later, during the lunch hour, I explain the situation and put the same question to my stairwalking friends. Set a trap for her, is Jane's recommendation. Direct confrontation, get in her face and have it out, is another. She's twice my size and scary and mean, I tell them. She'd chew me up and spit me out. Or maybe kill me and feed my body to wolves. I don't know why you bring us your problems if you're not going to take our advice, Janine complains. I'm not opposed to your suggestion, I tell her. It's just vague. Set a trap? What kind of trap? Where do I get it? What would I do with her when I've trapped her? 
Speaking of traps, oddly, this discussion of traps leads to a convoluted tale from one of the women about her stopped-up kitchen sink, which is what they talk about for the rest of the walking session. When I return to the office, Joe Epps is in the waiting room lounging in one of the chairs, flipping through a magazine with pictures of seeping rashes. What are you doing here, I ask, not happy to see him. I hear you've got Paula Mercer mad at you, and she's tripping your alarm every night. You want me to go talk to her with you? A surprising offer. A reasonable solution. That actually might be helpful, I say. Thanks. You know where she works? Vehicle maintenance. Closes at 6, he says. We arranged to meet at the front gate of the VMF at 4.45. This concludes the fifth reading of Snooping Caprock. In the next installment, Sandra pokes around the city's vehicle maintenance facility, which is where Paula Mercer works. She also gets caught sneaking into Donald's backyard at night and spies on Wendy, her nemesis. <laughs>